Okie dokie, here we go, following Jesus to a new way of thinking, a new approach, a new attitude into which the new wine that's poured can stay. Jesus is challenging in uh, those verses the religious leaders to think differently. If we're his disciples, then we need to think about how we think and whether we find ourselves thinking like Jesus. Christianity has been labelled, almost since its inception, as a religion. Christians are called religious people. Some Christians, maybe many Christians, think of themselves as religious. In fact, even those Christians who hate religion, and by the end of this morning, uh, I hope you might join them, it's easy for religious ideas to creep into our lives, our relationship, our community, and religion will be death to us. Jesus argued the most with religious people. Jesus was misunderstood the most by religious people. It was religious people that put Jesus on the cross, religious people that caused controversy, distraction, division, and on times, destruction to some of those early church communities as we read about in the book of Acts. Through the centuries, it's been religious people who have continued to do the same, and so often the religious people, not the world, and I use that distinction just for a moment, the religious people that have caused the gospel to lose its power. If we position ourselves close to Jesus, to the life that he lived, the mission that he gave, the community that he had established, we might too find ourselves on the opposite end of the seesaw to the religious people too. As Matt Holmes said in a church meeting just a week or so ago, talking about his uh, missional community that's meeting this morning, Sidegate Family Community, as much as part of what we're doing uh, this morning there as we are here, he said when talking about someone that he was inviting to something, he said, well, what is all this religious stuff? I don't like religion. And Matt said, no, neither do we. Neither do we. But just like last Sunday, well, I don't know about you, but last Sunday I could so easily have found myself identifying more with the Pharisees than with Jesus in Levi's house. So this morning sails a little too close for comfort on times. As Jesus draws out and exposes the attitudes, the underlying ideology of these religious types that find themselves opposed to Jesus. So we pick up the story then where we left off, have it open in front of you. Uh, We're at Levi's house, a great party's in full swing in honor of what Jesus can do in a person's life. But the religious people, the party poopers, are outside. That's where you find most religious people, outside the party. Why are the Pharisees, the religious people, complaining? Well, uh, they're complaining Because, and this is what we need to understand about the Pharisees and all religious people types, you see, religious people love rules. The Pharisees loved the rules. They were the rule police. For everywhere they went and for everything they did, for every occasion, for every event of every day, they had a rule, or 10 or 12 or 100 or more, as we shall see in a moment. God does not love rules like that. Now, we need to be careful here. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I need to be clearly understood. God does have rules, 
And God's rules are very important. Ultimately, life and death have life and death importance. But he doesn't have all these kinds of rules, and we'll draw a distinction in a moment. You see, when you think about the way God set up the world, he made Adam and Eve and he gave them the whole world. And he said, I want you to live in this world. I want your lives to flourish. I want you to enjoy one another. I want you to share your lives together. I want you to have children together. I want you to bear fruit together. I want everything to flourish and it'll be great. And there's one rule, just one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So one rule for all of that. And then we messed it up and so God put a few more rules in place. He put 10 rules in place, which, as Jesus will later uh, show, can be reduced down to just two, really. Uh, 10 commandments about loving God and loving one another. Rules are important, but not all these kinds of rules. And it's ironic, really, that a God that started the world off with just one rule should end up fighting people who say in God's name, that they're protecting life with many, many, many rules. So the Pharisees had decided by the time of Jesus that in order to protect the rules that God had given, there needed to be more rules. And then in order to protect those rules, you needed more rules. So by the time you got to Jesus, the Pharisees had a list of rules that if you wanted to follow God properly, you had to obey all of them. How many were there? Brilliant, someone 600, and I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, 613 additional rules to the Bible that you needed to keep in order to make sure that you kept yourself right with God and lived the kind of God that, uh, lived the kind of life that God wanted you to uh, live. And so by the time Jesus arrives, you've got the Old Testament and, and they were treating the and with equal, if not more, validity than the Bible itself, and you had all of these uh, rules. And the irony is this, that the Bible itself said, do not add or subtract from it, and yet they were adding to it in an outstanding way. And that's what religious people tend to do. They tend to add to the Bible. They add their own ideas, and they make them rules as important as what God says in his word. And they argue uh, along the lines of their rules and God's rules as if they are synonymous. Religious people, they add to the Bible. These rules then, the 613 rules that the Pharisees had, kind of covered everything about how you should eat, what you should wear, how you should work, where you go, who you go with, what day it is, what you should do at a particular time on a particular day and so on. Rules, rules, rules. And as Jesus would say, the trouble was that these rules that the Pharisees had placed a huge burden on people. Jesus said that his burden is light. So he draws this distinction between the way that he's calling people to live and the huge burden of rule-keeping that the Pharisees were placing on people. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. So the Pharisees are there outside Levi's house, and the reason they're upset and the reason they're moaning and the reason they're complaining is that Jesus is breaking some of their rules. And as the rule police... They didn't like it. Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Several rules were being broken all at once. And the trouble with religious people that add their rules to the gospel, 
that place such a burden on people is it causes them to become blind to the real issues. They can't think about love for Levi and his friends. They can't think about the importance of relationships with these people that desperately need the forgiveness of God. They can't think about the new kind of life that Jesus is bringing to this community. All they can think about is their rules. And so they're blind. And that's why they get straight on to the whole fasting thing. They were eating and drinking. The party poopers were outside the party. And aren't there rules about fasting? Well, of course there were rules about fasting. You fasted on Tuesdays and you fasted on Fridays. You fasted in this way and you fasted in that way. Uh, and why aren't Jesus' disciples obeying all the fasting rules? They now want to know. And that's where we picked up our story uh, this morning. Jesus answered them. Verse 34. Can you make the guests or the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. Can't you see, says Jesus, what's obvious? Or have your rules blinded you to what is blatantly true? The Messiah that had been promised for a couple of thousand years, the anticipation for whom had built over the centuries, was now here. It was a time for celebration. But what about our fasting rules? Fast on a Tuesday and a Friday, on a Wednesday and a Monday, lunchtime and evenings, and so on and so forth. Instead of celebrating what God was doing, they were crushed and blind because of their rules. And rules like this crush the life of God. And that's why Jesus was so kind of angry, so cross, so annoyed with them. Because every good thing that God gave, it was like they wrapped it up with a shed load of rules so that it was no longer good. Someone once described it, I think quite helpfully, as as being, being given a birthday cake. Okay, so it's your birthday and you're given a cake. There's no rules, is there, for a cake? It's a gift. It's yours. You can eat it to your heart's content. Although there'll be someone in your family that's the rule police, I'm sure, on that one. But imagine you give the cake, and you go, well, I know you would like a chocolate cake, but we're religious, so we don't do chocolate. We don't do sprinkles. We don't do flakes. You can eat this cake however you like, as long as it's not before, but after your main meal, not in the morning, certainly, only in the afternoon, not too late, with a fork and not a spoon, using your right hand and not your left. And you can eat it any day you like, except Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Mondays, and only at 20 past or 22. Enjoy your cake. And the cake is good, isn't it? And yet the cake has been totally ruined and lost and destroyed because of a shed load of rules that were never, ever attached to it in the first place. Life is to be lived and shared and celebrated, and these kind of rules were crushing the new thing that God was bringing into being. So Jesus offers a commentary in the form of a parable on all of this. He told them, well, it's obvious, isn't it, guys? No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he'll have the torn, he will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. The new, if you try and incorporate the new, the new life that I'm bringing, in this structure of rules and ridiculous burden, you will rip, you will tear the life that I am bringing. Your approach rips out the heart of what I'm trying to do. Religious people therefore find themselves opposing 
the work of Jesus, the very work sometimes they profess. Another illustration about the incompatibility, about wine, new wine and old wine. If, if you pour the new wine in and the, uh, and the way of life is not compatible with the new thing that God's doing, you'll ruin it, it'll be over. The rule book life is quite attractive for religious people because it's safe, it's secure, might be dead and joyless and lifeless without any heart or soul or passion, but it's safe. All you have to do is colour between the lines and you're done. So Luke puts two examples to highlight how destructive the rule mentality can be to the life of Jesus. And they're both around the Sabbath. So Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. Remember there were no chapter headings, so it just rolls straight in in the uh, original. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Ah, some of the Pharisees. Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, where were the disciples when they picked the grain? Where were they? Outside, they're out in the fields. So where were the Pharisees that saw them? Out of the fields. Isn't that what Pharisees are like? Religious people? Rule police? They're everywhere and they're watching you. You know, you go out for a quiet walk in the country and they're behind the next tree. Has he picked a head yet? Has he picked? Yes! Got him! A kernel of wheat in his hand. Whew. Feel better now. You see, because religious people, they're judgmental quite often because they love their rules. What have they done wrong? Well, they haven't really done anything wrong by the Bible standards. And Jesus points that out. Jesus says, let me tell you a story, a story that's in your Bible about what David did. And that was really cool because David loved God, his men loved God, and they did what was right before God, and the priest uh, gave them bread and so on. Uh, uh, The trouble was, that didn't wash with the Pharisees. It didn't matter that Jesus could go back to the Old Testament and explain why it was okay. They had their rules. And their rules were just as important as the Bible. And so their rules said, on the Sabbath, you mustn't reap, you mustn't thresh, you mustn't winnow, and you mustn't make any food. So, ha, four laws, you've broken them all. Got ya. What they also didn't understand is that in the Old Testament, that God had made provision so that if you were out walking in the countryside and you were a bit peckish, you could actually legitimately take some grain, take some wheat from a, 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 a field that you were walking through and make a sandwich. That was allowed. That was part of hospitality, part of being generous, part of the kind of world that God was trying to create. So they were simply doing what God had invited them to do. They were simply partaking in God's good provision. But the Pharisees, no, they won't have any of that. Let's ruin that with our rules. Now, of course, you couldn't go to a field and start hacking it and farming it and harvesting it, It, but you could make something in your hand so that you could eat to carry on your journey. But that's the trouble. When you start getting transfixed by your rules, you become ridiculously judgmental. And look where it ends up. This is just brilliant. So Jesus highlights how their rules are so far from the God of the Bible and the Old Testament story, and then he says something that exposes the true arrogance of religious people. Here they are in the presence of the Lord of all. Forget about Jesus just being the Lord of the Sabbath for a moment. Jesus is Lord of everything. Whose idea was the Sabbath? 
God's idea, Jesus' idea. And the Pharisees, as bold as brass, are now trying to tell him what they think he should be allowed to do on his own Sabbath. Now, don't laugh too much, because maybe in a moment we'll find some examples where we're not far off that. Where we put God right, because he hasn't quite got it straight. And so, he says to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And yet your rules have made you blind. Your rules have made you judgmental. They've caused you to lose perspective. And you lecture me on what I can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And it's mine. I made it. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for who? As a blessing for who? Man. Some of us grew up in homes where the Sabbath was not a blessing for men. Made for man. That same loss of perspective that causes you to stand outside Levi's house and tut and twitch, blind to their needs, content with their lostness. That same loss of perspective that sees you judging what God is doing. Same loss of perspective that calls making a sandwich on the Sabbath a sin while you can rush around the countryside pointing out what other people are doing wrong. And that's a good use of the Sabbath. To push the point home, Luke gives us another Sabbath story. Verse 6, on another Sabbath he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Can you see how this rule fanaticism, this, this being blinded by the rules, they cannot see a man with a withered hand. Who's God interested in in that moment? What kind of God do we worship? They cannot see the man with the withered hand. They've lost all sense of compassion. They've become heartless because they're transfixed by their rules. And religious people can become like that. They have less compassion sometimes than ordinary people. They, they don't seem to have the empathy that common human beings would have for one another because they've got their rules. And they, well, love, they love their rules. And Jesus reads their mind and he says, well, well, what's the best thing to do? To heal a man, which was the purpose of the Sabbath in the end. Was it to heal a man, to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Pharisees are going mental because if the, the man stretches out his hand, that was work. If Jesus healed him, that was work. So they couldn't do that. Better wait till the next day. And so what does Jesus do? You see, Jesus could have said to the man, let's go somewhere quiet, or let's come back tomorrow to save the fuss. Because do you know something else about religious people? They can be quite intimidating. Have you noticed that? People that sort of carry their Bibles and they know it and they've got their rules. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Is it just me? Okay, a few of you. Good, okay. Religious can be quite intimidating because they seem to know it all. You know, and the Pharisees, they knew it all. And, there was, you know, and they, they're always there. You know, the moment you do it wrong, oh, they spot it and they're on to you. And they're, oh, my word. But Jesus, no, come on, we'll do it now. And he calls out the man and he reaches, uh, and anyway, cut a long story short, the, the man's healed and the, uh, and the religious leaders go on their way praising God for a healing. So religion is all about rules and it takes them very far from God you're in a bad place aren't you when you lecture the son of man about his own sabbath 
You're in a bad place when you stop the kingdom of God breaking through in someone's life on the very day set aside to celebrate the kingdom of God. That's a bad place. But rules do that to you. They screw your perspective. They blind you to things that once were obvious. They rob you of uh, your heart. They fill you with a spirit of judgmentalism. They, they, they make you burdensome to other people. And no wonder Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm doing something new here. This is different. Whatever you're thinking about me, please don't confuse me with what the Pharisees are peddling because that's the way of death. And what I'm doing is not compatible with their approach, with their way of life. This is something new. What's Jesus into? What does Jesus love? If religious people love uh, relations, uh, if uh, religious people love rules, Jesus loves relationships. That's why he was at Levi's house, wasn't it? That's why he's there. That's why he's with those others at Levi's house. Jesus loved the man with the withered hand. In other in other versions, it talks about Jesus's compassion to touch people who are distressed, who need the kingdom of God to break into their lives. And more than that, Jesus loves redemption, a theological word meaning God's rescue, God's saving, God's forgiveness, God's healing, God's restoring, God's renewal, call it what you like. Jesus loves that. And that's what's dominating Jesus here at Levi's house because he loves relationships and he longs for them to be saved. I've come because they need a doctor. They need someone like me. I've come to call the repentance, the the sinners to repentance. That's why I've come. The man with the withered hand. I've come that I might demonstrate that my presence here is going to bring newness of life, not just a withered hand being put right, but the whole of creation being restored and redeemed. Could have said hallelujah. Hallelujah. But I understand there's probably a rule about speaking while someone else is preaching. That was a good one, wasn't it? Below the belt, but that was good. I like that. Nobody else did, I can see, but I like that. I'm feeling good. Okay. And so what Jesus is saying here, and we've got to hear this, what Jesus is saying is you've got to make sure that the dominant beat is right. It's not that there are no rules in the Christian life. Let's not say that's what I'm saying and go at some ridiculous passage that that we're not entertaining at all. But Jesus is saying you've got to get the dominant beat right. The dominant beat is relationships. The dominant beat is God's rescue of people's lives. And it's very easy for religious people to get rules in the way of that. It's very easy for every human being to start putting rules in the way of that. The church has been fantastic at putting rules in the way of that. The church has often defined itself not by these relationships of redemption, but by its rules. Defined ourselves by the things we just don't like and the things that we are against. So people think that we're against a shed load of this, that and the other, rather than we're for this world and we long for people to find fullness of life. Christianity the same. If I say to you, are you a good Christian? The instant response to that question, are you a good Christian, is to think in terms of rules. Well, I don't swear and I don't smoke and I don't drink, so yeah, I'm a pretty good Christian. And immediately we think in terms of rules, because that's how we've been conditioned. It's the kind of culture that many of us, the kind of culture that I've grown up in. Yes, I'm a good Christian, but they were good Pharisees. Am I a good Christian because I keep those rules? Or is Jesus reaching for something so much more? 
Maybe, though, we see that one coming, and we, and we know that, so uh, we've got our defenses up for that kind of thing. So we might answer differently, yes, I'm a good Christian because I read my Bible, and I go to church, and I do have my quiet time, and if I'm not working for Friends International, I get to a small group. That's just a joke. Are we defi- what have we done? We think we're clever and sophisticated, but all we've done uh, is swapped those common rules for ones that we think might be more spiritual. But we've still defined our Christian life by a series of rules. Jesus says the new thing can't be poured into the old. Jesus says the old, the rule thing, will wreck the new thing that I am doing that's all around relationships. Is a good Christian someone who follows the rules? And we've had lots of rules that we've tried to keep. And I guess maybe at least the Pharisees were more honest because they wrote their rules down. We've tended not to write our rules down, but you discover it's a rule because the moment you break it, the rule police are there. What is it? All kinds of things we've made rules about. Rules about what time a church service should start, how long it should be, what should be in it, what shouldn't be in it, how you should behave within it, how many times a day, a week, a month you should have it, what kind of music, should preaching be like this or be like that, what makes a proper Bible study, what must every prayer meeting have. There's always a tendency somewhere to create a rule. Martin Luther said, religion is the mode of the human heart. We very naturally default into this rule-keeping mentality. And if you've been around Burlington for a while, you'll hear me say something like, Leviticus doesn't say anything about that. And it's my way of reminding me and us that let's not make a rule of something that God hasn't made a rule about. Because that takes us down the route of the Pharisees. And Jesus didn't have much time for them. We've made rules sometimes that are ugly and overbearing. Rules can make us intolerant. And rules cause our relationships to suffer. I grew up in a staunchly teetotal family, uh, generations up from me. They were strong advocates of the temperance movement, and rightly so. Rightly so, because my grandmother was raised by an alcoholic, and in many senses she never recovered from that. And we were all good Baptists, and good Baptists don't drink. How many good Baptists in the house? Hmm, interesting. (laughs) Interesting. For various reasons, including my own life experience, my family background being the overriding reason for sure, uh, I don't drink. Now, what happens when a group of people create the rule? They create the rule that was created for good intent, really, and for good reason. Created a rule, no alcohol, but very quickly, maybe subtly at first, but it ends up quite ugly, there becomes this rule that no alcohol, sorry, becomes this rule of no alcohol, and then you begin to look differently, to look down on other people who might have the odd glass of something. You see how it does that? So in the culture of South Wales nonconformism, where being teetotal was a really high value, became a rule, you were brought up judging and looking down on other Christians, people like you lot, actually, come to think of it, (laughs) who were swigging it back. 
You see, the problem, what does that breed in me? It breeds a judgmental spirit. It fosters a division. And so I meet with other Christians, in inverted commas, meet with other Christians, and we're praying together, but somehow I think they're less than what they should be because of this rule that I've allowed to take precedence in my thinking that isn't in the Bible. You see, now I know that causing your brother to stumble is a sin. The Bible's clear about that. That's absolutely clear. I know that you shouldn't get drunk. The Bible's very clear about that. Both those things are no good. They're rules. God's rules. Good rules. But once you go down the route of raising the rule above what God says, you end up preaching about Jesus turning water into black currants and stuff. And it really takes you where you don't want to go. But more importantly, it makes you judgmental and arrogant and proud. Because, well, if they were proper Christians like us, they'd, bah, they'd hang on to the rule. Does that make sense? So if I haven't upset you with that one, I'm going to go through enough to upset everybody before we finish, all right? That's the idea. I don't want to miss anybody out, because that wouldn't be fair. Loads of examples. All around the world, you go into a church, and the biggest notice usually is not welcome, but two words. Biggest notice. Churches around the world, what is it? No confetti. No, no confetti. That's a good one. That's a, I wasn't thinking of that. But yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, we're religious. No confetti. A wedding? Urgh, don't celebrate that. Someone will have to clear that up. We're religious. No, be quiet is the one I was thinking of. Now, I know. Don't get on, don't get on to me. You know, don't fill my post bag on my inbox. I know that often it's be quiet because people are praying and we want to be courteous to that, okay? But the be quiet, which is kind of an interesting idea for a particular occasion because some people might be praying, quickly becomes a rule of religious people that God likes quiet. Which means he doesn't like noise. And so quietness becomes more holy than noise. And so churches that are quiet thank their lucky stars that they're not like that noisy church down the road who are probably going to hell anyway. And they ignore the psalms about shouting in church. Shout for joy. I mean, we don't do much shouting, do we? Come to think about it. No. Isn't it? Well, why not? Because we don't like shouting. But the danger is then you make that a rule. And someone shouts in church and we feel, oh, oh, my word, I didn't like that. God likes quiet. Didn't you know? Now this cuts both ways. Because there are other people who go, well, it can't possibly be worship unless we have a full band and a PA that will fill Wembley. And then it's worship. Then it's a joyful noise. And we make that a rule. And so you come into church and someone says, well, let's just sit down and be quiet. For oh, quiet? How can we worship if we're quiet? And we've elevated these things to become as important as the laws of God. And what do they do? They make us arrogant. They make us judgmental. They divide us from people. Do they help the life of Jesus flow through us? No. Churches and denominations have divided over all kinds of things. We kid ourselves often, I think, that we divide against other denominations because of deep theological preferences. Most of us can't articulate what they are. We just know we don't like doing it the way they do it. That's good enough for us. And so we have all these ideas that become rules. 
I really don't like communion when you all have to go up the front and share that one cup. It's much better to have little cups. So that, I like that, becomes a rule that you have to have little cups. You say it's not a rule. In the average Baptist church, you try introducing one cup one Sunday. It's a rule. The rule police will be everywhere. It's wrong. And we've elevated something ridiculously stupid on one level, not the communion stupid, understand what I'm saying. Ridiculously stupid. To a level that it was never intended. If we want to do it like Jesus, you've got to lie on your pew with your head on your neighbor's chest. That'll make you think carefully who you sit next to next Sunday. (laughs) And you've got to dip the unleavened bread in the same wine. It'll all down your friends and everywhere if you want to do it properly. But we get on our high horse about, oh, this is the way we do it. And it's the right way to do it. Going to church on a Sunday was like that, wasn't it? Three times you needed to go or you felt guilty if you didn't do Sunday school in the afternoon. Two times you had to go or you felt guilty. And what do you think of Christians that only went to church once if you went twice? (gasps) Oh my word. It's amazing God answers their prayers. And we create these rules. It makes us arrogant and proud and judgmental and all this kind of stuff. And then we're, we're sort of facing a similar journey now, aren't we, about missional communities and, and so on. We, we all need church. That's kind of a rule, and we're not changing that. But for church, there is a rule that church generally means we all sit in a row, the man or the woman... At the front, and there's rules about that too. The man and the woman will tell you when to stand, when to sit, and will tell you what to sing. And that's church. So if people aren't doing that, then they're not going to church. Really? In our heads, we can work that out. But even in our hearts, as I'm speaking, something's pulling. Because the rules are ingrained. They're part of us. And sometimes we find ourselves fighting for the wrong things like the Pharisees because we're holding on to a rule that was never meant to be there. Okay, please put up your hand if I haven't upset you yet because I'm working my way through the list. It's subtle, but it's important, I think. The idea that the the pharisaical spirit can take us to a place we just don't want to be. But at the end of this episode of of Jesus, Levi's come to Christ. All Levi's mates are having meals with Jesus. Jesus has been out in the fields with his disciples, teaching them and encouraging them, just sharing community and life together on a Sabbath. Then the next Sabbath, there's a man with a withered hand and Jesus heals it. The end of all that, the religious guys are furious. Because they clung to their rules. I want to become nervous about the rules I cling to, in this sense. Because I don't want to be clinging to rules like some godly idiot when God's doing something and I'm missing it. Because I've allowed something that's not that important to take the status it never ever should have had in my life. And Jesus says you can't do that. If you let these kind of things take the status they never should have in your life, 
you'll end up like those Pharisees, who at the end of all that are furious, and they're looking for a way to trap him. Beware of the religious spirit. But it's attractive, and I close with this, it's really attractive, the religious spirit, because we can know that we've done it right if we follow the rules. And there's something reassuring about that. They make us safe and give us security. We've had communion and we've had it on the right Sunday and we've used the right cups and we've said the right words and there's been the right kind of prayers. We've done it. Do that for a few weeks and we'll start creating rules about it because of our human tendency. And very soon we'll be trusting in the rules, the act, rather than the God that gives it as a gift. And a massive shift has happened. And because we've just done the rules, we think to ourselves, we've done it. God must be thrilled with us. And that's the problem. The ultimate problem is this. The reason Jesus is so against the Pharisees and their rules is because you end up, if you put the rules first, you end up with this attitude that it's the rules that make me right with God. It's the rules that make me acceptable to him. It's by keeping the rules that God must be chuffed with me. I've been to church this week and last week. How thrilled must God be? Really? We cannot get to God by following our rules. Only Jesus can save us and rescue us and redeem us. And sometimes my rules get in the way of that. And I've got to be open to what God would say. Beware of the religious spirit. Ironic, isn't it? That sometimes the true work of God still infuriates religious people. Call me anything you want, but don't call me religious. And in the words of St. Augustine, go, love God, and do what you like. Go, love God, and do what you like. Let's pray.